and turn to the book of Galatians chapter 1. I had prepared to speak to you from 1 Peter about um, be sober, the end of all things is at hand, be therefore sober and watch unto prayer, 1 Peter 4, 7. My mind has gone in a different direction, so I ask an interest in your prayers this morning. Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 4, but the text that I want to look at is verse 6. Maybe verse 3. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's customary way of introducing his letters as he'd write to the churches and the people, the individuals, Christians in his life. And, you know, Paul didn't set out in his ministry to write a book or a series of books. He didn't set out to write half the New Testament. He was just writing letters to those that he loved who he couldn't see face to face. They didn't have text messages. They didn't have uh, phone services. So he was writing letters. And he says frequently in these letters how much he loves the people of God and is praying for them. And his desire was for grace to be to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. We can pray for a lot of things. The prayer request this morning generally have to do with physical needs. And we should pray for one another's physical health. Uh, Paul desired that his... Um, fellow believers would prosper in body, soul, and spirit. So we should pray for all three of those things for one another. I've had a great blessing. The Lord has really burned my heart while we've been here to pray for your pastor in particular. I remember when uh, we would travel to Georgia uh, soon after we moved here, as soon as we would cross the Georgia boundary from South Carolina into Georgia, I would just feel a great burden and spirit and desire to pray for all of my family and friends and believers in the whole state of Georgia. Well, I've really had a burden to pray for your pastor, and I've enjoyed praying for you, Brother Stephen, this week. And I encourage you all to pray for your pastor. Hey, I know he's praying for you. I know that he loves you, and I know that you know he loves you and appreciate his ministry. And one of the best things you can do for him is to pray for him. Pray for him to have wisdom in his ministry. Pray for his health. Pray for his finances. Pray for his business. Pray for his uh, labors among going in and out among the people of God here at Mount Carmel. And around the region. I also want you to be encouraged that I know that you miss those that have moved away. I appreciate feeling that y'all miss us having moved to Alabama. But I want you to know that and when Brother Stephen is gone preaching at other churches, that that is a ministry Mount Carmel Church has. And it's an important ministry. I hope that you recognize and appreciate that. It's probably hard for you to realize and see what an impact that the congregation here is having all over the country. But you have to remember that there are ministers who have been raised up here and ordained here and influenced by the ministry here that are preaching in uh, various states around the country and and in other countries even. Um, So that's a great, great testimony to the work of God here at Mount Carmel and Bel Air, Maryland. I pray that that will continue for many years to come. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. He gave himself to deliver us from this present evil world. I was reminded earlier this week of a passage in John chapter 4. You know, a lot of times um, when people talk about getting saved, you know, they'll ask you, have you been saved? When did you get saved? And they'll tell you about their experience of being saved. And if you were raised in a primitive Baptist environment, maybe you say, well, I don't know what to say to that answer. You know, I know that God's done a work in my life and I don't know exactly when I feel like I was born again. I can think of a time when I, 
wanted to follow the Lord in baptism when I believed that Jesus had died for my sins. But that word that you hear out in the world a lot of times about being saved, maybe it's kind of hard for you to relate to. Or maybe that is something that you can can perfectly relate to. Um, But I want us to think about it in terms of, of scriptural language, because a lot of times when people say, when did you get saved or I got saved, they're thinking about the time when their destination changed from being hell bound to being heaven bound. And when you look at what uh, the Bible teaches about salvation, it's a little bit different than that. Now, we know that uh, we're saved by the grace of God, or if you don't know, that's what the Bible teaches, that we're saved uh, by the finished work of Jesus Christ. He said on the cross, it is finished. That means everything that was required, the law's demands for our for God's standard of holiness have been satisfied by the life of Jesus Christ. The law's demands for Uh, The atonement for sin. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That was satisfied when the Lamb of God, who was slain, as it were, from the foundation of the world, died on Calvary's tree. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father turned his back upon God the Son as he was making an atonement, a propitiation for our sins, as he was satisfying God's divine wrath. And the power, of the, God, the, the power of God, the wisdom of God, is declared to us in the preaching of the gospel. That Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. He's the power of God. He's the glory of God's person incarnate. He's the brightness of God's glory, the express image of God's person. If you want to see God's love, if you want to see God's power, if you want to see God's wisdom, take a glance by faith at the cross of Jesus Christ, and you'll see the, the, the utmost display of God's glory in sacrificing His only begotten Son, in laying upon Him the iniquity of us all, in being pleased to chastise His Son, in being pleased to bruise His Son for your sins and for mine. That is where the gospel teaches salvation comes from, that we're saved from the wrath to come by the finished work of the Lamb of God. But John records in the gospel of John, when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman and they were having this philosophical religious debate, you could say, she perceived that he was a prophet and he's going to take this conversation to the most important place, the most intimate place, which is The sin in her life, that was what Jesus was calling people to do that he interacted with. Yes, he would heal. Yes, he would open the eyes of the blind. But his ministry, his preaching was to call sinners to repentance. Repent and believe the gospel. And when he would heal uh, the leper or the one who was lame, he would say, uh, Sin no more, lest something worse happen to thee. So this woman, she wants to have this religious debate. And a lot of times we can do that. We want to have uh, theological debates or doctrinal debates and debate about, you know, uh, the tulip doctrine or different points of doctrine. But Jesus takes it where it really matters. He takes it to the heart and he says, uh, she says, I want to hear more. And he says, okay, go call your husband. And we'll talk about that. And that was a strategic statement because he knew she didn't have a husband. He knew that she had been married, I think, four times. And the man that she was living with wasn't her husband. He was calling the sin out in her life. And so now the conversation, she kind of, she kind of tries to move around this. And she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. So she says, so since you're a prophet, let's have a, let's have a debate here. She says, you Jews, your claim is that in Jerusalem is where the people should worship God. That that's where God's house is. She says, but I'm a Samaritan and our elders, our fathers have taught us that in Samaria is where you're supposed to worship God. So she says, which is it? And Jesus says, it's not A or B. It's neither of the above. He says, he says, frankly, uh, the, the time is coming. In fact, it now is when the true worshipers shall neither worship in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem, but, but in, in spirit and in truth. And then he says this, ye worship 
ye know not what. Now they may have been completely sincere in their worship. There may have been born again children of God for all we know. Going through the, the motions of religious activity there in Samaria. He said you worship you know not what. They were worshiping. They were devout in their worship. But Jesus says the problem is you don't know what you're worshiping. If you're not worshiping the true and living God, the Bible says you're worshiping demons. That's the only option. You're either worshiping God or you're worshiping idols. He says you don't know what you're worshiping. And, and worship is not just what you believe. It's not just doctrine. Worship is also practice. It's not just do you believe the right things about God. It's are you approaching Him in the way that He's commanded you to. Are you approaching Him in the way that's pleasing in His sight. Are you offering strange incense upon His altar. Are you, are you worshiping according to your own imagination. You say I think God would like this. So I'm going to worship Him in this way. The Samaritans were probably doing both. They had, they had bad doctrine. They had bad practice. But they weren't following the word of God because God had ordained under the Old Testament that you worship in God's house, which was the tabernacle, which was a mobile tent that could be folded up and set up throughout the wilderness. And then it was set up at Bethel. And then uh, David desired to build a fixed place for the worship of God in Jerusalem. And God said, you're not going to be able to build that because you've been a man of war, but your son Solomon will. So Solomon built the temple, which was a wonder, one of the, I guess, seven wonders of the world. And then it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and it was rebuilt in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And Herod had enlarged it and and spent a great deal of money refurbishing it for the Jews for political reasons in the days of Jesus Christ. But that was God's house. That was where his worship, according to the Old Testament law, was carried out. You had to have... Uh, You had to have ordained priests. You had to have priests that were of the sons of Levi. You had certain procedures for how the sacrifice was to be offered. And so this is only happening in the whole world in Jerusalem. The Samaritans, they're offering sacrifices, but they may not be offering the right kinds. They may not have the right men offering the sacrifice. They may not have been believing the right things about God's person, about his work, about the, the law. So Jesus says to this woman, you don't know what you're worshiping. And that could be said... Today, the difference between believers and unbelievers is not, uh, are you a worshiper or not a worshiper? We're all worshipers. Whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, you're worshiping something. We're all worshiping something. Maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's your own will. Maybe it's your own understanding. Maybe it's money. That seems to be the contrast in scripture is you're either worshiping God or you're worshiping mammon or filthy lucre or the desire for gain. Not because we all think that money in itself is so great, but because of what money can do, the power that money gives, the ability to serve yourself, the ability to gain whatever appeals to your flesh. So you're worshiping something. The question is not, are you a worshiper? The question is, what are you worshiping? Who are you worshiping? The Samaritan woman didn't know, and her, her Samaritan uh, brethren didn't know what they were worshiping, according to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we know what we worship, talking about the Jews, for, listen to this, salvation is of the Jews. So that's kind of the point that I wanted to get to when it talks about salvation. Salvation, according to this verse, in my mind, is not so much about your eternal destiny, although I think that is a part of it. He's talking about your worship of God. That salvation and the proper worship of God, having a proper understanding of who God is and how He wants to be served, is a is, is salvation. Are you worshiping the true and living God? Um, and so when we turn to the book of Galatians, a, a, 
a statement that I've heard is the purpose of evangelism. God sends the gospel to places where there are no worshipers. There's a place on the face of the earth where there aren't worshipers. The gospel goes there to teach God's people how to worship God, who he is, how he wants to be served. And that's why it's so critical. You know, Paul said to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. And you could go into that extreme, and that's what... A lot of times that term hyper-Calvinist, that's what they're talking about. Somebody who believes in salvation by grace, but doesn't really believe or doesn't show any interest in doing evangelism. Uh, You know, the Bible says all men everywhere are commanded to repent by God. Does that mean everyone's going to repent? No. God commands all men everywhere to repent. You could say, well, it takes God's grace for somebody to believe, and that's exactly right. But when you're preaching the gospel, when you're sharing the word of God with someone... You don't know whether or not that is an elect child of God. You don't know know if God's going to do a work in their life. Wednesday night, we looked at the wild Gadarean, and we were reminded that there's hope for the most hopeless situations. The person that you think is so far gone that there's no possibility of their life being redeemed, of them being restored, of them knowing God, of them being converted, of them being delivered from from slavery to sin, uh, nobody's beyond the reach of God's power. And so we need to share the good news of the gospel with that confidence that if these these individuals that are hearing these words are ordained to eternal life, if they're hearing the word of God and they're ordained to eternal life, they're going to believe the gospel. And if they don't believe, there's nothing wrong with the seed. There's nothing wrong with the word of God. The problem is the heart. The heart is stony and the heart is unable to receive the word. So Paul says to the Galatians, That Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. And we do need that. We need deliverance from this present evil world. Now, there's, there's, they say there's three phases of salvation. There's uh, being saved from the penalty of sin. That's what happened when Jesus Christ died on the cross. He satisfied our debt, our sin debt to God. Then there's being saved from the presence of sin. That's when the resurrection takes place or when we go home to be with the Lord and we're delivered from the actual presence of indwelling sin. We no longer have that conflict with our sin nature. And then there's being delivered from the power of sin. That's what happens in conversion and in the new birth. Christ came to save us from from this present evil world, from the condemnation that's going to come upon the whole world. He's going to come. He's going to return and judge the world in righteousness. He's going to judge according to the law of God, according to the perfect standard of God. And under that standard, there's none that can stand. There's no sinners. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. So under the standard of God's law, there's no hope for any sinner. And that's what Paul's addressing here in the book of Galatians, because there were some that had come among these believers in Galatia that were teaching a false gospel, a false doctrine. And, you know, you've got to be careful when it comes to uh, when it comes to lies and when it comes to heresy, because the most insidious, the most dangerous are the ones that have a whole lot of truth and just a little bit of error. And that's why it's so critical for you and I as believers to be immersed in the word of God. Because it's when you know the Word of God, when you're exercising the Word of God, when you've applied the Word of God to your life, you're going to be able, you're going to have that ability to discern, your senses are exercised to discern, the Bible says in Hebrews 5, between good and evil. And to be able to recognize that maybe 1% of that .001% of, of lie from the pit of hell that could do great destruction in your life 
and the lives of your loved ones. Paul's addressing that in Galatians. There's a lie that's crept in among these believers, and he is going to try to root it out. He's going to expose it. He's going to root it out, and he calls them out on it. He says, verse 6, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. He says, which is not another. So, Evidently, in Paul's day, and I would submit to you it goes on today as well, there are other gospels being preached. There's the gospel that was delivered to us by the Lord Jesus Christ and was expounded by the apostles and is preserved for us in the word of God and has been given to the church to be a steward of. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is to be a repository and a place where the gospel is believed and taught and promoted and spread. That's the gospel that Jesus Christ taught. And there also are perversions to that gospel, which Paul says are not really another gospel. The word gospel means good news. The gospel is that you're called into the grace of Christ. The grace of Christ, that's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So anything that's a perversion from that is going to be taking away from the grace of Christ or adding something to the grace of Christ. And in this context, it was the... um, The teaching, the doctrine of circumcision, it was a legalistic tradition which had good origins under the law. It was something that God commanded his covenant people in the Old Testament to do. If you were of the seed of Abraham or if you were a proselyte converted to be a Jew, then you had to be circumcised. Moses, we can read, uh, he was on the backside of the desert and when the Lord called him to go to Pharaoh to lead his people out of Israel. Egypt, we find this very curious sub, curious verse where it says the Lord met Moses and would have killed him. You say, why is he going to kill Moses? He just called Moses to go lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And it was because evidently one of his sons was not circumcised. And so his wife, she circumcises the son and cast the foreskin at Moses' feet and says, you're a bloody husband to me. So circumcision was a requirement to show that you were a part of the covenant people of God. All right, well, now we're in the New Testament. And it's just been 30 or 40 years since Jesus was born or early in the days of the church. And the Galatians are being taught by these believing Jews that Christians, all Christians, whether you're Jew or Gentile, if you want to join the church, you need to repent. You need to believe the gospel. You need to be baptized. And then you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. That's what they were teaching. That it's not just grace, which is really the message of justification by faith, but it's grace plus something. Grace plus circumcision in this case. So that's what Paul is fighting against. He's fighting against this idea that there are, there's a requirement uh, that you have to do some work in order to be justified in the sight of God. That you need to be circumcised in the flesh. He says, this is uh, not another gospel, he says, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And then he says this, but though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, Let him be accursed. This is very serious, and he repeats this twice. It's important that we hold to what the Scriptures teach about salvation by grace. And he says, If anyone comes preaching any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. It's a very serious thing. So I ask you, is this possible? If it was happening in the days of the Apostle Paul, is it possible that it's happening in our day? Is it possible that it creeps into the church, even primitive Baptist church? I think it's certainly possible if it was happening 
in the days of the Apostle Paul. One of the ways this became manifest was that they stopped associating or fellowshipping evidently with the Apostle Paul, who was the first one, the Apostle that preached to them. He says, I marvel you're so soon removed from him, talking about himself, that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. These false apostles, false teachers, when they would come in, and Jesus warned us, remember, in Matthew 7, he says, Beware of false teachers which come unto you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. And he doesn't say you're going to be able to identify them by the way their words sound or by the way that they dress or the way they fix their hair. He said the way you're going to be able to identify them is by their fruit. That's how you're going to identify. So look at the fruit of their words, of their ministry. And these false apostles, when they would come in, they would attack the character of the preacher who had preached to them the truth, the Apostle Paul. And the people started to, maybe they didn't want to be associated with the Apostle Paul. And he has to admonish them. In 2 Corinthians, he, uh, he's forced to, because these apostles were talking about their credentials, they were talking about maybe their education or their experiences, and they were saying, Paul doesn't have any of this. He's not as eloquent. He's not as, uh, he's not as physically attractive. He's not... He's not any of these things. Maybe he's not as educated. And so he, for the sake of the Corinthian church, feels obligated to list his qualifications. <laughs> and he, he's so modest at this point that he's really embarrassed to do that. He's embarrassed to talk about uh, the things that he suffered for Jesus Christ. He says, for such are false apostles, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. Deceitful workers transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Now, I want you to listen to this. This is remarkable. He says this. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. So he says, if Satan can transform himself into an angel of light, it's not a big deal for his apostles, his his prophets, his servants, to uh, transform themselves into the apostles of Christ, to appear to be apostles of Christ. Now, uh, I know a preacher who... When he was a young teenager feeling, or late teenager, when he felt like he was being called to preach, uh, his dad was a minister, and um, he would open services. And at that time, the tradition was if you weren't ordained or, I guess, liberated, you'd stand down in front of the pulpit. And one time he was called to open the services. He had been speaking for a little while, and uh, he wasn't sure for sure if God had called him to preach, and his dad wasn't for sure either. And he was going to preach from the book of John. He had a verse... Um, um, in his mind from the book of John. So he went to open to the book of John and he couldn't find John. He was looking and looking. He couldn't find the book of John. So he had memorized the verses that he was planning to talk on. So he just closed it up and he said, I'm going to quote. He thought himself, I'll quote the verses. And he couldn't remember the verses that he was thinking of or that he wanted to quote. So he just said, I'm sorry. And he sat down and he they had lunch on the grounds, and he just went. He sat in the back of his dad's car, and he just hid. And he thought, I am never going to do that again. And then he got home that night, and he was trying to avoid his parents. And um, I guess he was out on the front porch, and his dad came out, and he had a little bunch of grapes, and he offered him a grape. And he said, he said I want to talk to you, and I want to talk to you about your sermon. And he was so embarrassed, and he just didn't want to talk about it. All. He said, I just don't want to talk about it. And his dad told him a story, I guess, about... Uh, maybe his own call to ministry. But basically what his dad said, if I can remember part of the story is, um, he said, I knew you were called to preach, 
But I didn't know until today if the Lord had called you or Satan had called you. He said, I knew if Satan called you, he'd never let you down. (laughs) He wouldn't have let that happen to you. But because that had happened, he couldn't remember the verse. He couldn't find the book of John. He felt like that. His dad felt like that was confirmation that God was calling him to preach. These false apostles, they transformed themselves into the apostles of Christ. And Satan's able to do that into an angel of light. He says, therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. And you can be comforted by that. Jesus says that every secret thing is going to become manifest. All these things, Brother Kilby, if you haven't heard him talk about his car accident, that's a horrible experience that he had with his car hitting the brake and the accelerator. It's speeding up when he hit the brake. Well, you know, the police officer says, well, you hit the accelerator. It's your fault. Well, maybe you did. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you did hit the brake. But you know what? I believe that's going to come to light eventually, Brother Edmund. The truth's going to come out eventually. Maybe you've been falsely accused. Maybe you've been slandered. Maybe there's been something in your life that maybe you're trying to keep something hidden. Maybe there's some secret sin that you don't want to come to light. It's all going to come out at some point. I used to think that that meant in the day of judgment, every secret thing is going to come out. But based on what's been going on the last two years in the world, I'm starting to think we're living in a generation where maybe not everything, but a whole lot is going to come to light. A lot of things. And I heard it said, and I think it's true, that if the truth about what's going on in the world was fully known, it would put half the world in the hospital. It would put half of us in the hospital. We couldn't handle it. Like that line from, uh, from the movie where he says, I just want to know the truth to his superior officer. And his officer says, the truth, you can't handle the truth. Right? There's a lot of horrible things going on in the world. And when we have to face the reality about how horrible our own sinful nature is, how corrupt it is within right here. You may say, well, my worst enemy is, is my coworker or my boss or my family member or somebody, my neighbor. It makes my life so hard. They just won't go along with what I want to do. They, they're just so critical of me or whatever it is. And yet the word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, pierces to the dividing center of soul and spirit, joints and marriage, the discern of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is exposing our inward thoughts, our inward motives. It's like the preacher who was slandered by someone and somebody came up to him and said, well, can you believe so-and-so said that about you? And he didn't really get too upset about it. He wasn't that concerned that his reputation had been marred because he said, you know what? The truth is, if you could see what goes on within my heart, you wouldn't want to come within 250 feet of me. So how do we face the reality of just how bad things are without and within? Well, the good news of the gospel is what enables enables us to do that. We don't have to put our head in the sand and pretend like things aren't as bad as they really are. Because, you know, you can watch a lot of movies or you can have a lot of bad dreams and go to horror movies. And just you can imagine your vain imaginations, a lot of terrible circumstances, terrible situations, a lot of dreadful things that we can imagine happening. But you see, in those vain imaginations and in the the movies that you're seeing, there's one important variable that's not being considered. Even on the mainstream media, when there's a terrible tragedy that takes place, and it seems like there's terrible tragedies all the time. And we're really benefited, aren't we, by the mainstream media. They tell us what we should be upset about, what we should be anxious about, what we should be scared of. They really help us, don't they? I'm being sarcastic if you didn't realize it. What's the important variable that's missing in all these things, even in your nightmares? The fact that God is on the throne. The fact that God is a God of grace, of sovereign grace. 
that he sent his only begotten son into the world, that whosoever believeth in him, what, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans says, he that spared not his only son, but delivered him up freely for us all, Romans chapter 8, how shall he what? Do you know this verse? How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The variable that we need to keep our eyes fixed upon, yes, it's a terrible world. Yes, you've got a corrupt heart. Yes, if we were left to ourselves, we would utterly destroy ourselves. We would not be enjoying the benefits that we have today if it wasn't for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But the fact is, God is on the throne, and He is perfectly seated there. He's comfortably seated there. He's sovereignly seated on the throne of the universe, and I trust on the throne of your heart. And if He's not on the throne of your heart, I urge you to repent and to believe that Jesus Christ is worthy of your worship and of your devotion, of your life to be laid down at His feet, of His will to be uh, supreme in your life, of His word to be the guiding influence in your life, not the mainstream media, not Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow, or uh, Donald Trump or President Biden, but for the Word of God to be what influences you and informs you, or Dr. Fauci, the Word of God to be where you are influenced by. See, the problem that we have today is there's a lot of influencers who have no God-ordained authority. You need to recognize that. There's a difference between being an influencer and having authority. You can be very unpopular and have very legitimate God-ordained authority. And you can be very uh, popular and have no authority from God. The problem is when the people of God start following and obeying influencers rather than following and submitting to the authority that God has placed in your life for your safety. The bubonic plague or monkeypox or whatever it is comes out next week and the influencers say, it's not safe for you to go to church. You better listen to what your pastor says. If your pastor says, well, I think there's a verse here that says, not for the sake of the assembling of ourselves together as a man or some is, and God can protect us or he can take us home to be with him. Whatever your pastor is feeling led, I think you ought to honor the counsel of your pastor rather than the influencers who don't have any God-ordained authority. That's a blessing that God gives you in your life. Children, your parents, uh, wives, your husband, uh, the government, even the government. You may not always agree with what's going on, but if we're talking about, I'm not talking about mandates, I'm talking about laws that are in place that the legislators have passed according to the way the state constitution, the federal constitution allow. Laws are to be obeyed. Mandates are optional. Just keep that in mind. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What more could God the Father give to his children than his only begotten son? How, what greater display could there be of the love of God, of the power of God, of the wisdom of God, than of the gift, the death, the burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? And he gave himself, Jesus gave himself willingly, according to the will of the Father, for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world. So the Bible says, because of that, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The Spirit of God is inside of you. If you're following after Jesus Christ, you're in him. And there's no condemnation to those which are in Jesus Christ. Because it says, he chose you before the foundation of the world to be before him holy and without blame before him in love. He's chosen us in Christ Before the foundation of the world, all believers were chosen by God the Father in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now maybe, based on your background, maybe the idea of God's sovereignty and his predestination 
Maybe that's a frightening thing to you. Maybe that's one of the most frightening things you could think about. That God would choose some and that he would not choose others. Maybe you say, well, that's not fair. I've learned recently that fair is, a, is an emotional term that people use when they want to get their way. When you're negotiating and you don't like how the negotiating is going, you can say, well, that's not fair. And it puts the other person on the defensive and they, they're more likely to come towards what you want when you say that's not fair. So people use that uh, in theological circles. They say, well, it's not fair for God to choose some and not to choose others. Well, look, the Bible doesn't promise fairness to anyone. God calls us to be just in our dealings with one another, but he never promised to be fair. He's benevolent. He's gracious to all. He makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the wicked. He sends his rain upon the just and upon the unjust. You could say that's not fair. How can he bless uh, everyone when only a small portion of people are actually serving him and honoring him and trying to follow him by faith? Maybe it's not fair that he... Bless the rest of the world for the sake of a small handful of people. You could say, well, what's really fair would be for him to send us all to hell where we belong. You know, the angels that fell, those fallen angels led by Lucifer in their rebellion against God and God's son. There is no redemption for them. There is no hope. They have only the dread of eternity in hell to look forward to. And they have much, I think, much better intellects than we do. So they can fathom. And they've also seen the glory of God. They know what they've lost. You and I really don't know what we're looking forward to in heaven. But the angels know. Those fallen angels know what they've given up. They know what they're never going to have. And they hate you because you're made in the image of God. And because God sent his son to do for you what he did not do for the fallen angels. He sent his son to die a cruel death on the cross for our redemption. So it's the grace of God that we need to keep our eyes upon, keep in the forefront of our mind. Yes, there's a horrible world. Yes, there's a horrible world of sin within. But God's grace is greater than our sin. Jesus gave himself for our sins. that He might deliver us from this present evil world. That means there's no condemnation. Nobody can accuse you. Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren, isn't that, isn't that uh, pernicious how he works? Your enemy comes up to you and tempts you. You've got your own flesh that is drawn away by lust. You've got the world that's peer pressure and wanting to draw you away. You know, when somebody's drinking or smoking, they don't feel comfortable unless the people they're with are drinking or smoking. So why don't you follow us? The world says, follow me, be like me, so we don't feel like we're doing something wrong. When you don't participate, that's a, that's a reproof to an ungodly lifestyle. And then you've got the devil who comes up and says, hey, why don't you indulge in this sin? You know, and then you, you, you go down that path and maybe you get to the place where you're hopeless. You say, well, I've gone this far. There's no hope of me getting out of it. I'm so far gone. I might as well just, just, just go all the way. But then guess who's the first one to accuse you before God? The tempter. The one who's tempting you to sin. The one who wants to destroy your life with sin is the first one to go up and say, look, God, look how bad he is. Look how bad she is. Oh, don't you want to just judge them and pour your wrath upon them? Your law requires that they die because of their sin. But the Bible says that the accuser of the brethren has been cast down, that there's no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Because you've been justified by God, no one, not even Satan himself, can lay anything to your charge. That's a miracle for us as sinners today. All the sin that we've committed today and this past week and all of our lives 
And it, it very, it's a very real thing, and it happened. And yet the Bible says that God has separated us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. He's taken it into the land of remembrance, never to remember it anymore. Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God. When he was forsaken by God the Father, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a good question for us to ponder. Why would God the Father forsake Jesus Christ? What sin, what error, what deviation can you find in the Gospels where he failed to obey God perfectly? Where does he ever not love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength? When did he ever not love his neighbor as himself? When was he ever selfish? When was he ever disrespectful? Never. When did he ever lose his temper? Never. And so that's a very good question. Why, my Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course the answer is because he laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And with his stripes we are healed. He gave himself for our sins. He might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Look forward to the day when all of God's people will be able to be together in one assembly. We can give glory and honor and praise to the Lamb who was slain. We can see Him face to face and we will know Him even as we are known and be with Him for eternity. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have never made a public profession of faith, then I encourage you to do that at this time. The Lord bless you.